Hi, I'm Shereen Patek, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. My guest today, somewhat of a retail veteran, at least he's appeared in Modern Retail Pages for a very long time now, known for doing things very differently. Zach Normandon is the CEO of Iris Nova, the parent company of many, many things, it seems like these days. But first, joining me on this episode is Kale Weissman. Kale is, of course, a senior reporter here at Modern Retail. Hi, Kale. Hey, how's it going? It's going okay. Kale, you've been writing or working on a story about Casper. And Casper, of course, is the mattress company that recently filed an S1. And I did want to bring you on to talk a little bit about it because about six months ago, uh, we wrote a story on our sister site, Digiday, about how Casper you know, the rumors of an impending IPO and why it was so important. It felt like one of those things that every founder at the time that I had on the podcast, every DTC company, every VC was like, okay, we're all watching Casper. And we called Casper kind of a bellwether of the health of the Mm -hmm. DTC industry. Talk to me first about why Casper's IPO is so important beyond kind of Casper itself. Sure. I mean, Casper was one of the most early quote-unquote DTC companies that raised a boatload of money, had a huge valuation, and then was sort of brought pushed into a corner when it came to exits. And so all of these companies, big or small, uh, VCs, entrepreneurs, you name it, have been looking at it, well, how do you have a successful exit? And the IPO seemed like likely the only thing it could do right now. I think the latest it raised was a Series D. It's worth over a billion dollars. What could it possibly do? And so when you get this S1, you see under the hood, and then you see that, uh, you know, things aren't as pretty as... I think people didn't think it was going to be pretty, but, you know, they're spending insane amounts on customer acquisition. They've tried to d- diversify their product. They they have, but not completely. And, it, you know, it's a big question of how do you, know, how do you scale and how do you meet investor demands when you have over a billion dollar valuations, when you have a product Product that's a $700 mattress that people buy once every 20 years. Right. Um, and so, yeah. and it's, you know, the bellwether is the sort of the question of so many companies in that space have raised a lot of money and are now trying to figure out, you know, what do, what do we do? And so, the, you know, who I've been talking to, people have been saying, well, yeah, you know, this isn't surprising, but this could have a cooling effect on, you know, even companies that have less expensive, more frequently bought products in terms of, you know, the appetite for, for growing it so quickly and at such a crazy pace. The, the, there's a lot there. And I actually want to talk a little bit first about why Casper? I think there was, you know, there's an interesting kind of, there's a lot of sort of DTC theories now. And there was this interesting theory that Casper was kind of like the 2.0 wave of DTC. And I think you sort of mentioned it, you know, before that there was, there were a bunch of companies like Warby Parker. Um, And, but Casper was really the one that sort of sought to prove the theory that you can build a business essentially mostly by yourself. You cannot, you don't have to, depend on wholesale to do this. And I think that was one of the reasons why everyone was interested in it. It was also mattresses, which I think a lot of people thought was just unique that, oh, we didn't know you could do mattresses. And it was out there disrupting a really old industry. Mm -hmm. It was trying to do it all online. And it did believe in some of the other principles of you do need a brick and mortar store, but it was very unique to sort of the way those founders sort of thought of their trajectory, right? Yeah. And it's there's a lot of ironies to that because if they had sort of held true to that and had not you know, gone as quickly for as much money as they did, they probably would have proven it out. I, I would, I mean, who, who knows? But right. like, you know, th- that's something, but they ended up sort of having to grow and 
prove themselves at a much quicker fashion. And then they went the traditional route. They received investment dollars from Target. They're in Target. You know, mm-hmm. they, they are doing the things that they set out to not do as a way to sort of because they've been forced to do that. And so mm-hmm. it's really interesting seeing, you know, their trajectory and seeing a what's in these, you know, what's in these filing, how they're how the market's going to respond once they do go public. It's sort of like they had this very idealistic, pure vision of what it meant to be a direct-to-consumer company. And as they've gotten bigger, they've had to qu- quietly forego that in the name of, you know, reaching as many people as possible and figuring out how best to scale. There were there was another really interesting point of the S1. And, you know, absolutely, I think for a lot of people, I think they expected some of these marketing costs to be high. And yeah. a lot of the numbers just kind of proved out like, yeah, we knew this was going to happen. We knew this was happening. But there was one interesting point in there about sort of it almost proved out the resurgence of the physical retail store, which I found Absolutely. really interesting. And um, there's a great annotation of the S1 on our site um, by Anna Hensel, if you haven't had a chance to check it out. But th- there was one bit in it that she pointed out where she goes, the physical retail stores that Casper had, which they opened lots of, mm-hmm. right? They have loads of them now, were showing just better returns. They mm-hmm. had a lot people were buying bigger ticket items. The average order value was higher. I believe also there were cities where the stores existed. There was also what? Some kind of halo effect. Yeah, they had a great digital sales specifically where their locations were, which is a great argument to be made for, you know, brick and mortar retail. I I, I did like that because it was, you know, we've talked so much on this podcast about how even VCs are saying, you know, we're not going to really talk to a lot of companies unless they have a very solid brick and mortar retail strategy. I mean, I think there are two things. I think that that's very right. And sort of what this proves out like also, and the, which I I think goes hand in hand with the brick and mortar strategy is that the the playbook used to be start digitally, get as many customers and then figure out profitability from there. And I think now what VCs are realizing is, you know, get as many customers as you can, but also have a solid path to profitability, which will likely include physical retail. (laughs) Like everyone I talk to is like, we can no longer have the sort of tech, like get as many customers, you know, throw your money towards Google and Facebook and then figure it out from there. That doesn't work, especially when you have expensive physical products. What we, if we, we want to invest in your company and you think you're going to, you know, be a 20 to $100 million company, you need to actually tell us how you're going to be profitable. Absolutely. So what comes next? Let's speculate, which, you know, we do rarely. So I mean, let's have fun with it. No, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are speculating. This isn't from me. This is from people I've talked to, people who have gone on the record elsewhere saying that they aren't going to go public in the end. Like given what they've seen in, you know, in these financials and the response online and off is that there's no way unless more information comes to light in the coming weeks and months. So that's one possibility. The next possibility is that they go public and they're, they don't see, get the valuation that they seek out, which uh, is likely and would be really bad for them. But also, you know, how yeah. things go. Well, the big winners in this, I think, are sort of the investors, especially the, the principals. Absolutely. Lair Hippo. Yep. Target, I think, mm-hmm. is, is seeing some good. And that's another one. I think that's one where we say, wow, physical retail. Talk about one of the legacy retailers that made smart investments yeah, that, that might have tar- paid out. Target and Nordstrom are two of the, like, they figured out the correct companies to align with, even if those companies didn't, you know, aren't doing as well as, you know, as they cost, possibly could be doing. They made very smart investments and, you know, partnerships with them and they're bearing out right now. It's really cool to see. Amazing. Kale Weissman, thank you so much for being on the show. Great chatting with you. And that was Kale Weissman from Modern Retail. Coming up, my guest today, Zach Normandin. Zach is, of course, a CEO of Iris Nova, who also has a very interesting theory about the future of DTC and the role of brick and mortar. Hi, Zach. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? I'm pretty good. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. 
So let's start from way from the beginning. You have sort of a history in doing things differently in retail. Um, tell us a little bit about sort of how you got into this world in the first place. So I started in beverage um, really as a way to fight retail. Um, so my last company, I started in 2008, and we were selling products into retail stores like Whole Foods and Target and some of the bigger national chains. And I was always really just frustrated by the process of getting product onto store shelves because it always felt very antiquated to me that you had to present to a buyer and then have the buyer approve that product before you actually got it uh, onto store shelves. And I sold that company in 2013 and I was just really thinking and contemplating kind of or reflecting on that experience and really wanted to do it again, but just do it differently. Um, and uh, at the time in 2015, it's crazy to think this now, but there was really not many uh, direct consumer food companies. Um, so you had like Soylent, um, which had built a really interesting direct consumer business primarily. Um, there was Blueprint Cleanse. It was mostly in beverage. Uh, and then there was Hint Water that had all kind of, um, you know, built really interesting businesses direct and then also had retail exposure as well. Um, so I kind of used those brands as a model. And then I saw what was happening in the beauty space with direct consumer brands where people were using Instagram to, to launch brands. And I thought that that was really interesting too. So, you know, once again, it's crazy to think that this was only 2015, but right. Instagram was a very different place in 2015. There was, uh, it was a chronological feed. A lot um, fewer ads. <laughs> no ads. <laughs> no ads, um, all right. No algorithm change yet. Uh. Um, so th it was just a very different place. And um, so we, we launched uh, Dirty Lemon uh, on Instagram really uh, as a response to my experience uh, in retail stores and trying to figure out ways to just get closer to consumers. Let, let's go back to sort of frustrations because, look, we've had so many founders and CEOs on this podcast of various kind of disruptor startups that have all expressed kind of a variation on what you just said. Right. Almost everyone, I think, has started, whether it's in beauty or in wellness or in furniture or strollers, by saying, whatever is working isn't working and I'm going to change it and do it better. But food is hard. Food is difficult to do directly, which is, sure. I think, why it took longer. What were sort of some of the lessons you learned kind of from like the 2008 sort of era and then coming forward to 2015 that made you think that, okay, things can be different. We can kind of do things differently. Had the market changed? Had consumers changed? What, what had you learned? So I think, you know, looking back on the transition from, uh, well, 2008 was just a completely different year altogether, but um, looking at the transition from really like it was, from 2013 to 2015, it was like really the sweet spot of starting a direct consumer company. Mm. Um, I mean, the irony in all of this, and I'm sure we'll get to that, is, you know, it's almost impossible to be exclusively direct consumer. Now you actually need retail right. to, to grow a brand because, the, you know, consumers have changed. The market's extremely competitive now. Um, the cost to acquire customers online is um, is unsustainable for, for a lot of companies. So... You, you know, we've learned to to actually do retail in our own way now, and actually, um, you know, use retail to our advantage. But I didn't have that perspective um, when I first started in the industry. It was right. just like the only way to get to consumers is to is to sell, you know, sell to retailers. Um, yeah. There was no other way to sell, and or we could have, you know, sold to Amazon or whatever. But um, 
But yeah, I think like, you know, that, that period of, you know, a few years was really the, the right time to start. And we got lucky with a product that consumers really enjoyed. And, um, and uh, we were marketing to them in a channel that they were using heavily. So 2015 was like when everyone would post like food pictures every single day on Instagram. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, we, we So like, when you say sweet spot, <clears throat> you had Instagram, you had this like right. force, that's this visual force that was kind of transforming how people were sharing things, I think, online. Right. What about logistically? What was kind of making things easier in the sense of, okay, I'm going to make a thing, but I'm also going to make sure it gets to people. I'm going to make sure payment gets easier. All the, all the things that were really difficult sure. 20 years ago. So we used, uh, you know, we, we were thinking about that. It's like, you know, there were a few different options available to us. We could have either set up a Shopify site. We could have built an app and then had the product available exclusively through the app. Um, and then I really started like researching all of the different ways that consumers were interacting with brands globally. And I found that in Asia, it was probably the most exciting. Um, just the, the speed at which the market is moving there is much different than here Absolutely. in the States. And so the, you know, so that was really the inspiration for a payment platform that we ended up developing where basically, um, you know, you can order the any of our products now at any time all over text message. So every brand has a phone number. When you want to place an order for a product, you just pull out your phone, you text the brand directly. Um, you can ask questions about the product. You can, um, you know, check on an order or you can place a new order. And all of the customer data is shared across all of the brands in the portfolio. So if you order Dirty Lemon um, once and then you want to place an order for Minna, you never have to enter your information again. It's already in the system. So we're using data in a way not to exploit customers in any way, but to actually be able to service them better and to to learn more about them so that we can serve them more relevant options. Because I think that we're gone is the time where consumers are excited by like what their you know favorite influencer is uh, using on a regular basis. Like no one cares anymore. I think we've been so destimulated by the marketing and the advertising that we've been inundated with over the last, you know, uh, two or three years that people just really want to make decisions now, um, you know, about things that are, that they like, you know, they, they want to, um, enjoy a product that has to relate to them, um, has to be, you know, they don't want to be forced products. And I think that that's what we're learning is that, um, you know, building a brand in this current market is much more of a long tail type of a, uh, you know, a process sure. than, than in the past where you could just build scale super fast. Well, I think, you, okay, you've said a lot in there. And let's talk about the text messaging first, because yep. I think that's what sort of stood stands out when you first think of sort of your business model and you say, what is so different? There's a lot of the differentiated product, differentiated branding, but it's the delivery. It's sure. the it's what you're doing with the customer journey. Conversational commerce was such a thing like five it years was, ago, yeah. right? Do you remember everybody was talking about it? It's like, this is going to change everything. I think most people talked about it in in the environment of like a Facebook messenger, the bots, there's going to be chat bots that will change things. I remember, I remember all these people spending all this money on really great chat bots on Facebook or whatever. And then I would go and try and use them and they would just be bad. Right. It would be hard to use. They didn't understand what I was saying. They couldn't find it. And inevitably I'd have to just sort of give up at some point and that friction would start. And then you guys sort of, figured it out along the way, but you've also sort of gotten it right in a way that others didn't. What has been the hardest part of sort of this conversational commerce, and I'm putting quote marks around it, to really take off? Because customers get it. Customers text. This isn't a new behavior you have to teach sure. anybody. But it never seemed to get there. Well, I think 
Well, there's a number of reasons. I mean, I think most consumer or most companies or or they weren't even brands, they were just companies thought of this as a way to exploit customer service as a channel. Yeah. So as a way to optimize customer service and remove humans from the equation. And that was really the whole thesis behind a chatbot. It was like, why hire a room full of people when you can have a computer do all the work for you? The challenge in that is that there's no tur- there's no AI in the world that can pass a Turing test right now because we're the way that we communicate is is changing every single day. Sure. So you know, children use emojis now to communicate. My kids have abbreviations that I don't even <laughs> know what they are. It's probably for the best. Yeah, actually, someone was telling me this the other day that, um, like, when you do one K, it's like actually a negative thing, and when you do two Ks, it's like that means like it's cool. This and I was thinking a lot with everybody on my team. I'm like, I get a I, lot of one Ks. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and if I have ever one K to you, I'm sorry because that was not my intention. But I mean, the, the way that we communicate is different. Sure. So to expect that a that a robot is gonna is gonna do that is very uh, so the tech just not there. The yeah. tech is not there to mimic or sort of even supplant humans. No, and I mean, so we bought the best chatbot in the world at the time in 2017 called Poncho, which was a really, I mean, very progressive for its time. They were, it was just a weather bot, but um, it was all per- personified through this cat character that they cr- created. And so this cat lived in Brooklyn and um, was basically there to tell you the weather whenever you asked it questions. And they did a really, really um, fantastic job of building this product. But the problem was it's just really hard to monetize. And that's actually the other piece of this that um, that I think a lot of people forgot about at that time. It's like there's only so much that you would be willing to pay to um, – you know, for a bot type product, um, customer service is something that's expected by consumers. So, uh, brands either have to invest in this new customer service channel or they need to, um, I don't know. It just seemed like a heavy lift, I think for, for a lot of people. So that did kind of wash out, but you know, I think the reason why, um, business-based chat over text message hasn't really scaled, um, or did scale and it's definitely gaining momentum. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, this is a channel that was has been historically, um, you know, reserved for friends and family. You, you know, you it, it's not a normal thing to you know. While the behavior is very familiar, um, you know, it's not a place that you would expect to be sure. communicating it's with, a, with a business. It's one to one. It's not broadcast. It's, right. It's very different. And I think that that's what we're, you know, in a, a large part of our business is working to change that is to familiarize the process of actually picking up a product and knowing that they have a phone number on there that you can text and be able to get an immediate response. Um, so we've built the underlying infrastructure that supports that at scale. So we have um, six brands in the portfolio now. We have, we're adding three more this month. And every brand has their own phone number. And we think in the future that brands are going to have a website and a phone number. And the website's going to be for you know looking at pretty pictures about the product. And then it's going to be the phone number where you actually interact with the brand. Um, similar to like, you know, this is the way business was done a long time ago where it was, you know, direct mail and stuff like that. We're going to take a quick ad break and then we'll get right back to talking about brands with telephone numbers. Okay. The future is here in which every brand gets its own phone number and we put them in our phone and they're our friends. This is literally like the ideal of every marketing Absolutely. person, right? Like brands are people and you treat them and you trust them or you don't trust them just the way you do your friends and your family and other people. 
and it's I, I love this stuff because it's like to your point earlier, it's like we're going back to a way that things were, then we sort of moved Absolutely. away from it. So you said something earlier, which is it was it's never been easier, and maybe this is especially the sweet spot that you mentioned earlier, but even today, to start a company. I can throw up a Shopify, I can spend a ton of money on Facebook and Instagram, and I can get it done. To me, it's never been harder to build a brand specifically because of those Without reasons. Question, right? Where did you start with kind of the brand building? Like what did that mean for you? And what did where where do you say, okay, this is the brand I'm gonna build, these are the characteristics it's gonna have, and this is the thing people are actually gonna buy? Because yes, they're buying what's inside the bottle, but they're also kind of buying the bottle. Sure. I think with Dirty Lemon, we focused on the aesthetic around the brand before we actually started marketing the products. And we've never really overtly pushed the products. Um, you know, where this becomes really challenging is that the expectation for brands is that, you know, as consumers, we're, we are consuming so much content or as, uh, you know, uh, media um, viewers or whatever it may sure. be. Um, I mean, I know like right now, so I'm watching a couple new shows on on Apple TV and stuff. And uh, so I love Servant. I thought it was a great show. I don't know if you guys saw it. And um, uh, The Outsider is really good, which is an HBO show. Too scared. But so here's the deal. Like they only release both that Apple TV show and HBO. They're only releasing one episode a week, which is like the way TV used to be. But it's really annoying that they don't, that they're not um, like putting all the, the content out there at one time, which is obviously what Netflix's strategy is. And I think that that whole, you know, what we've come to expect is content all the time, like always something new, always something different. And I almost think that consumers need to be retrained to kind of slow down and not actually expect like a brand to be posting every single day on Instagram or whatever it is. So we've actually slowed down on with social media advertising. Um, but when we started, we were posting 12 times a day. So it just shows you like the, you know, the spread between where we were and where we've come. And a lot of it is because we just don't want to, we don't ever want to be forcing the brand or the products onto consumers, which it, it, once again is a much slower growth strategy, but much more sustainable. You also said, and I remember this, this is maybe like a year ago or so, you're just like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to advertise on we, Facebook. We, and we haven't advertised. We haven't spent a dollar on Facebook since the end of um, 2018. And it kind of comes back to my point earlier that Facebook, a lot of so-called direct-to-consumer companies, you know, they have a lot of different names, but these startups, younger companies that are mostly selling online have, they're, they're more marketing companies than they are product companies. They're just a lot of them are just really good at, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's almost like, that seems sometimes when I say that, it's like people are like, oh, it's a pejorative. I don't mean it that way. They're just really good at being on Facebook and Instagram, using sure. those levers, using these amazing marketing machines. But the product in many ways doesn't have to be differentiated. There's 120 swimwear brands right now. Right, 170. Do you see that? Is it literally 170? No, 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 mattresses. 179 mattress right. companies right so now. So you look at Casper's S1 and, they right. and, and you're like, okay, so there's nothing really different because other than the marketing other right. than the brand that you've built same with swimwear same with bras same with really a lot of other industries and then so and then things just keep getting more and more expensive so getting a customer gets expensive facebook gets it. at what point does all of this kind of stop at what point do we say you can't support any more brands this market can't support anymore well i think it's happening right now i mean you know, all due respect to the Casper guys, I, sure. I have so much respect for what they've built. But you see the S1s, I mean, especially over the last six months, um, 
and all of these companies are going public because they need more capital to continue to grow. Um, and also their, their investors are looking for exits. And, um, you know, what's happening in the public markets right now with these startups um, trying to go public will have an impact on all the other startups in the space. Um, because these, you know, once early stage investors see that the public market doesn't, um, isn't accepting like the metrics that, you know, right. the growth metrics that they've been funding for years, um, you know, those companies aren't going to be funded anymore. And I think that that's uh, going to be a challenge for a lot of brands that have relied heavily on marketing on Facebook, on social media, on different digital channels um, to, you know, grow their top line revenue while never really focusing on on burn. But going public isn't always the end goal. Or actually, it's very rarely the end goal, right? No, it's not. And, uh, you know, I naively thought years ago that that's a path that I wanted for us. And honestly, now, like, we're focused on getting to profitability and, like, we want to work. So we have this amazing partner in Coca-Cola. We want to work as close as possible with them with the goal of taking our innovation and insights and all the things that we've learned and applying it to their, you know, business model globally. And I think that that is the real end goal for us is just to actually you know, continue to challenge the industry, but have support from obviously the much, you know, the, the biggest beverage company in the world. It's a, it's, it's an interesting point because, you know, we, we've sort of, I've asked a lot of founders this before, especially founders that have taken venture capital and those that who've actually avoided it, especially in the early years, quite a bit. And one theme that's come up is like how much taking venture capital kind of pushes you into growth that you're potentially just not ready for you right. know venture capitalists are looking they're not interested in a small company they want exponential growth they sometimes want it at all costs and that has meant that for founders of companies that breakneck you just start right. growing really much faster than you're willing or able to how did you sort of square that kind of pressure you still need funding um, sure. and where did kind of the coke investment fit into that because that's a very different kind of investment i know it's through their ventures arm but it's different taking it from a big company like that versus like an actual venture capitalist that yeah, you know is going to push that um i mean i guess first and foremost building a company is extremely hard you know and it feels it feels breakneck at times it you know you can call it reckless you can call it all these things but at the end of the day it's just hard it's very challenging to build something from zero to any sizable scale, you know, uh, but it's the entrepreneur's goal and dream to be, to, to grow something. It's like, you don't want to just, you know, you, you know, you wouldn't be going, uh, out for funding if you wanted to just build like a mom and pop, you know, like down the street type business. Um, so I think with that comes obviously, uh, a different responsibility set because when people are investing in you, they're expecting a return. Um, I think for Coke or with Coke for us, um, you know, that was always the vision was to attract the attention of a much of, of, a strategic, um, Coke was obviously always number one on my list because what they've created globally is incredible. There are not many products where you can go in any country in the world, you put the product on a table and everyone's going to know what it is. It's probably only Coke and McDonald's, maybe one or two others, but I mean, they built a brand it, it, without question. And with, um, with notoriety globally, that's really impressive. So I want to learn from them. And I think that, you know, we approach that relationship with the spirit of like, we don't know everything, but we want to learn from you guys. And, um, you know, we aspire to be, you know, to build something to your, to the scale one day. And, um, 
obviously what we're doing with direct consumer is really interesting to them because they've never really had a direct business. Right. Um, I mean, Coke has um, done a great job of saturating every distribution channel, but the direct side of selling is something that's foreign to them. And I think that's something that we're, you know, ideally we want to, we want to play a big part in. So, so yeah, it was more like, I mean, I can't say enough good things about the team at Coca-Cola and, and everything that they've done to support us. Um, and I think, you know, the reason why we chose them is just because it felt really like a partnership, not like an investor. It was like, let's work together. Let's learn from you. You guys can learn from us and then yeah. we'll build something bigger together. It does remind me a little, little bit of sort of, you know, the old kind of incubator model that a lot of bigger companies had, you know, Visa famously had has had right. an incubator for a long time where, you know, I, I used to joke that it's like, it's like biosmosis because a lot of these big companies wanted to learn how to be more modern. Right. And one way they did it was by bringing entrepreneurs who did think differently that were symbiotic with their business into the building. And it almost, you know, by working together, we'll learn more from them and be like them. But then it's hard not to ask. I mean, you were, we just saw P&G by Billy, you know, is the goal to then get bought by Coke? Is the goal to one day be owned by a Coke? Um, Yeah, I think that that's probably the best path forward for us, unless we can get to a place where very quickly where the company is profitable. And I think, you know, we're not profitable yet, but we're thinking about that every day and we're modeling every day what we need to do, which levers we need to pull to to get to that place. And um, I mean, listen, the, you know, our, our immediate goal is just is continued growth and we're adding new brands, we're adding new cities. So we distribute, you know, we're adding same day deliveries, which is a huge, a huge push. So we ideally we want to get to the place where you text this number right now and just like Amazon, your order is going to arrive in two hours. Um, and if we have a portfolio of beverages, let's say dozens or even hundreds of beverages that are offered with the same exact service. So you're on your last bottle of San Pellegrino or Coca-Cola or whatever mm-hmm. it is. You pick up the your phone, you text and say, hey, send me more. And then you it arrives to you. That's a seamless experience that every consumer would enjoy. And that's what we ultimately want to create. So um, along the way to making that happen, um, if we get acquired, then so be it. But, you know, that needs to come with the expectation that or we, I would only do that if it was something that would, would enable us to achieve that goal faster or more sustainably. Sustainable growth. It's, it's really been a theme of a lot of people that have come on. And I think that there is a sea change kind of happening. Let's grow sure. sustainably. Um, Last question then, because you've mentioned Amazon a couple of times, um, but you're sort of on Amazon, but only a little bit, kind of almost as a defensive maneuver. Sure. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, your approach to Amazon and what that's been. So the reason why we're even on Amazon is because there were um, there were people that were knocking off the product, so it is defensive. Um, so basically, they were marketing Dirty Lemon that wasn't Dirty Lemon and basically trying to upsell consumers on buying it from us and then reselling it on Amazon. Um, so we ended up taking care of that. And then we had the products on there just so we could kind of like secure our spot on Amazon. Um, I don't think, and I feel really strongly about this, I do not think consumers have loyalty to Amazon. I think that they just enjoy the quality of serv- the convenience of Amazon. Okay. But I don't think anyone like really self-identifies with being an Amazon (laughs) consumer. And I think that that is a void in the market that can be filled by other other companies looking to um, provide that same quality experience, but do it um, with real, like, you know, brand loyalty tied to it. That's the best way I've heard of it, but nobody's really sitting around being like me. Just, just love. 
I love Amazon. Lo- <laughs> just, just love it. Um, I do love it. And that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast. Zach, thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, thank you. Thank you for listening as well. Our producer, of course, Pierre Bianeme, who also made our amazing theme music. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, search for a show, leave us a review and a rating. I'll read my favorite reviews here at the end of the show at some point. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week.